Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. It was during those years between getting arrested, house arrest, and actually going to prison when I had met my guest today, Michael Kimmelman. Mike and I became very close friends after this meeting, but Mike had just gotten out of Lewisburg prison camp, the same prison that I was just about to go into. And when we met, he decided to sit and help me prepare for life inside prison. And we got to talking about his life, his background, and we talked about Bitcoin. And the year was 2015. And since that day, Mike became a Bitcoiner, Bitcoin lover, and all things cryptocurrency. His story is insane, and I don't want to ruin it for you, but his story and what he's been through dwarfs mine. And Mike is a really good guest and a really good person to talk to. And we've been able to remain close and allow us to work together for the future. Enjoy the show. Talk to you guys after the ads. I'm so honored that Untold Stories is sponsored by eToro. eToro is the smartest crypto trading platform and one of the largest in the world with over a trillion dollars in trading volume per year. What I really love about eToro is that the CEO has been around the Bitcoin space since 2012, so they really, really put their money where their mouths are. US customers, myself included, we can trade the most popular crypto assets, in fact, almost all of the ones that you wanna trade with low but transparent fees. So you actually know what you're paying for everything. And that's really, really, really important. So if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice building your portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. So you can create this whole portfolio without trading with any real money to see how you'll do and you can learn all the different ins and outs without using any real money yet. And then once you're comfortable, you can enter the market and start buying and selling crypto for real. Best of all, one of my favorite features is that you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders in the world, myself included. And we can talk trading, charts, and all things crypto. So listen, head on over to eToro.com, links are in the show notes, and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. I want to thank and give credit to the first ever sponsor of Untold Stories, Scott Offer. Scott is a Bitcoin mining consultant, and I really want you guys to check out one of his coolest apps that's free to use. It's a Bitcoin mining profitability calculator that you can check it out before you get involved in mining, or if you just want to learn more about whether mining is profitable and how it works. The website is CryptoMining.Tools. That's CryptoMining.Tools. You can enter your estimated uptime and get more realistic profit projections. It includes really cool features like the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having, which is actually coming up extremely soon. Their API allows you to embed profitability calculators and other live data directly into your own website, all for free. Also, if you're wondering which miner is the most efficient or has the best chance of breaking even, you should try out their interactive hardware comparison chart. So it's a hardware comparison chart. So you can compare all different types of miners for all different coins and tokens. And it's interactive. So you can play around with it. It's by far the best tool 
If you have any questions about mining or if you want to learn more about mining, it's the best tool you can check it out. As a mining consultant, Scott helps you make data-backed business decisions. He will be involved in the process if you want to buy a miner, if you want to sell a miner, if you have miners and need to get into data centers. I mean, if you follow Scott on Twitter, even if you're not in the mining industry, you learn so much. I follow him. It's super cool. You can check it out on Twitter or Telegram at Offered Scott. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. Again, I want to give a special thanks to Scott. You were my first sponsor when the show was just launching. Thank you so much. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the BlockWorks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at BlockWorksGroup.io. That's BlockWorksGroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Over the course of this show, we talk about a lot of things and prison is one of them. I don't use it as a crutch and I like talking about it because it helps me uh, therapeutically. And also, it provides some good stories. It's very interesting and allows me to talk about the past, present, and future and reflect on where we're going. A lot of people come to ask me and they say, Charlie, how did you prepare for prison? What did you, what did you do to get ready? And that's a whole nother conversation. There's a lot of things I did to get ready, like close up all my loose ends um, financially you know, settling up all the bills, making sure that you have no um, bills that you're going to have while you're in prison that, that'll default or whatever, you know, moving things into my wife's name. Um, there's all these different things that you have to prepare. I was very fortunate. My next guest, Mike Kimmelman, who's a best-selling author of Confessions of a Wall Street Insider, a fantastic book that you can purchase on Amazon. Mike actually helped me prepare for prison because he had actually served time in the same prison that I, I was in, Lewisburg Federal Prison Camp, and had already been released before I went in. And we spent a lot of time together talking about what I needed to do to prepare. We talked about crypto, and I guess the crypto bug hit him because he's been working in the crypto space for the past, like, three years, Mike? Full-time yeah. Full in, in crypto for the past three years. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Charlie. Good to be here. So I, I know from like my end how I got introduced to you, but how did you get introduced to me? What who told you to come meet me and sit down with me? And, and what, what were your first impressions on that? We had a mutual friend who uh, made the original introduction. I don't know if we want to go into who he is, but at any rate, he's we, someone uh, that you want to be friends with if you're going to prison. Yes. And I think this was a way for me in, in some cases to pay it forward. So in my situation, it was around the end of 2011 that I was supposed to report. And I spent probably six months before that talking to people who had been in my shoes before. A, talking to them about whether to go to trial or not. I had been offered a very, uh, let's call it a sweetheart deal by the government in my case, which basically they offered me a no jail, no fine plea deal. If I pled guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit insider trading, that's what I was charged with. 
I ended up turning down that deal, but I talked to a lot of people beforehand about the criminal justice system, about the prison system. And during that time, this is one of the gentlemen I talked to. So once I got out, I sort of ended up doing the same thing for a lot of people that people had done for me. So I offered and I didn't charge. It was just sort of a way to pay it back or pay it forward to speak to anybody that was going through what I was going through uh, and wanted advice. So and, and still today, I mean, you get calls, probably I get calls to meet up with with people and that are about to go in. I've I've been on the phone with, um, uh, you know, Billy McFarland from the Fire Festival called me up a few times and he's like, what do I need to do to prepare from 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 prison? And I was like, well, don't do anything stupid. And as anyone who's seen the documentary knows, he did something stupid and like got start like, another scam. Yeah. Right. And got like eight years. And like, I feel I remember I was in the grocery store when he had called and I was like literally on the phone with him for an hour about I was like, just just keep your mouth shut. Don't talk to the press. Don't do anything stupid. Live in your parents basement or whatever. Um, but you got offered a really good deal. You ended up serving what, like two and a half, three years. I was sentenced to 30 months. I ended up doing about 21 months on that sentence. And, you know, the deal was was a very good deal had I taken it. Uh, but I just fundamentally didn't believe that I did anything illegal or wrong and decided to go to trial, not knowing, obviously, that the criminal justice system and a court case is very different uh, from what, A, I learned in law school sure. and B, what you see on TV in Law and Order. You know, in Law and Order, it's sort of this 42 minutes, you get arrested, you get investigated, you get tried and you get sentenced. In reality, it's a glacial system. And it took, you know, two years before I even got my chance to defend myself at trial. I had one of the fastest systems from the time I got arrested to the time I was sentenced was 11 months. Wow. And that's the fastest anyone has ever seen. And I'm sure the prosecutors and everybody else was probably a little bit shocked by it. Yeah. You know? Well, the, the thing was, is that, you know, you talk about illegal and wrong. Like there's a major difference between, hey, what is what I did morally and ethically wrong versus is what I did illegal? Is there a law written somewhere that says, if you do this, you will go to jail. Sure. And did you break that law? I, I knew from day one after reading my arrest warrant and reading my, I knew that what I did was illegal. Um, and so I immediately told my lawyer, like, I'm not going to trial. I can't afford trial. Um, I would lose a trial and let's just make a deal. And I guess I got lucky where the prosecution was dealing with the Silk Road case. They had a lot of other... And so my deal, they just wanted me for, you know, um, to make it, they were happy that it would, I guess it was easier that I wasn't fighting or wasn't going, you know, to jail. And, and, um, and I admitted my mistakes, but. Um, In those types of situations, you often are trying to just make the least worst choice that you can make. There's no good choice. Right. So, I mean, was it, was it such a, a hard hitting thing for you when you lost a trial and you, they coupled you with a lot of other other people who had committed a lot of really bad things. And you were, you were coupled with those people. You didn't even get your chance at your own trial, which I think is wrong in, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, the government's very effective at winning these cases. And that was sort of my fundamental bad handicapping on that front is the federal government wins 97% of their cases, wow, whether by plea insane. or by trial, which is itself a statistic that should sort of leap off the page and give you pause. I mean, I don't think anybody would buy tickets to a sporting event if one team won 97% of the time. So it's indicative that there are a lot of uh, prejudices within the system that favors the government 
and without really understanding those, and I think obviously minorities in our country have understood this for a while, but I think most people are only just now realizing in the last four to five years how fundamentally flawed the system is. And there's a big movement, including in our president now, to change how the justice system works. And I think crypto will will fundamentally change a lot of um, the unfairness in that. And we talked a little bit earlier, and that's very interesting because, you know, it's supposed to be um, innocent until proven guilty. That's like you're born and you read your textbooks in high school. You know, our justice system is the best in the world. The courts, you're innocent until you're proven guilty. But that's not the case. You're You're guilty almost... From the minute that you're arrested, you're perceived as guilty. You're on pretrial release. There's a bail hearing, you know, and then you're like having to defend your innocence, which it should be the government or whoever's prosecuting you having to defend their defend your guilt. It should be the opposite. And some of the ways that they make your life very difficult is by seizing your assets and making it very difficult for you to actually live. And it's almost like having their hands around your neck and, and, um, crypto can change a lot of that. Um, how did that happen to you? So that's a great point. Uh, in my case, presumed innocent is obviously one of these enshrined American ideals, but it really is a fiction. It's not as it's portrayed and implemented in the system. It doesn't get realized that way. So, and you brought up a couple of great points like bail. Most people can't afford bail. So to be able to defend yourself from a cell block when you don't have contact impossible. with your lawyers, it's impossible. If you have to it defend yourself difficult. from being inside prison, it's physically impossible. And we've seen a lot of at least encouraging reforms start to take place with the bail system and whatnot. But there's you know a dozen other ways that it's very difficult to get a trial or to get a fair shake. And, and one of those is charge stacking. So, you know, if you're facing 40 or 50 years and it's easy through the math to contort the charges, to add on and stack charges, most people are going to have to take a plea. Nobody's going to flip a coin. And it's not even a coin flip, as I mentioned. It's a 97% loss ratio. Who flips a coin on 20 to 25 years? And while I was away, I met a lot of guys who just didn't understand a, the sentencing and how it works, or B, the likelihood of, of their chances of winning a trial. So it's a very discriminatory system uh, that has a lot of bad outcomes. So in my case, I'll give you just a quick, quick overview. If you want more, read Please. the book. Uh, I wrote a book about it all. You can obviously check that out. I was charged with receiving a stock tip from a partner or somebody who became my partner in the future. I traded that stock tip. I was charged originally with making $16,000 on that tip. Uh, was never told of the source of the tip, didn't have knowledge where it came from, and was running a $250 million hedge fund at the time. So this was a fraction of a fraction of the assets, but it was the financial crisis. And you had, you know, again, the big banks. That, mm -hmm. Is it your responsibility to know where that tip came from? I don't believe it is. So if someone calls me up right now, and it's happened all the time, I have friends call me up, my friends in the, let's just say, I don't trade any stocks at mm -hmm. all, but hypothetically speaking, a friend of mine who works in the medical space calls me up and says, hey, <clears throat> it says, calls me up and says, hey, this is an, an amazing medical tip. Trade the tip. And I trade the tip. Am I responsible to know where that tip came from, even though I know he's in the medical space and maybe he has access? Other people don't. You might be. And the weird thing about <clears throat> insider trading is that it's never been congressionally defined. It's not statutorily defined. It's a hodgepodge of judge-made law. So there is 
a gray area that's not exactly clear. And there's a lot of different sort of, you know, ways to analyze it. In fact, in my case, even the judge didn't do it correctly. He ended up giving the wrong jury instructions uh, and using the wrong standard. And he ended up being overruled in every single case after mine for that. And unfortunately, it's too late for me. I had already served my time. But that just goes to show you if, if a judge and the prosecutors and all the lawyers involved in my case and future cases couldn't get the law right. It's sort of unfair in some ways to put that burden then on the defendants. I mean, the cornerstone of American law, of any common law, is you got to have notice. You have to know that what you're doing is either legal or illegal, and you have to have knowledge of it once you do it. It has to be intentional. There's something intent. called mens rea. You have to have that intent. It can't be accidental. Now, there's a few things like statutory rape and all those other ones that statutorily remove intent and that's fine, but this is not an area where intent is supposed to be removed. So in your example, uh, if you know your friend works for you know Pfizer and, and he's on this team that's experimenting and this is a material non-public bit of information, then yeah, you're responsible for it. If he's just a guy who manages money or heard from three other people, doesn't know where it's a rumor or something like that, then maybe you're not responsible for Are it. Are you required to ask? Yeah, I mean, you're supposed to ask. It's okay. not There's supposed no to be ignorance. something. Yeah. You're not supposed to bury your head. And that's what when the government knew they couldn't prove knowledge on my part, they went with what's known as sort of a willful blindness uh, analysis. And the judge let them substitute knowledge for willful blindness, even though my partner was at best a grifter uh, and who was saying that the source of these tips was just coming from another hedge fund. It's never been the responsibility to say, all right, I need to speak to the person at that hedge fund, find out where he got it from and go down this long chain. And in certain cases, it was five, six people away. Uh, if you, you know, there's a duty of confidentiality for certain people, but repeating the rumors that this guy passed on and the way he was passing them, the law had never been implemented to prosecute those things. But what was going on was it was 2009. The banks had obviously, uh, ended up paying, you know, 200 to 400 billion, depending on like what number you believe, time, yeah. worst time. Uh, and virtually <clears throat> nobody went to prison for that. So we needed somebody who was, and I don't like to use the word scapegoat, but we needed a public, uh, you know, apportioning of blame outside of where the blame should have been in this type of crisis, which was on bad public policies, which was on the fraudulent behavior of some big banks and whatnot. So they arrested a bunch of hedge fund people because you could parade a guy made a lot of money in a suit up front and say, this is the guy responsible for the crisis. Thank God we got him. And the public was angry at this time and rightfully so for sure. that type of fraud. Uh, and I'm not saying, I'm not excusing some of those people. Many the of them deserve to go to prison who, yeah. yeah, and committed crimes. But in my case <clears throat> and several others, cases that ended up getting overturned, this was a big net and they grabbed a lot of people in a very unconstitutional way that weren't supposed to be grabbed. When people read your book, they probably come to you and say, your crime wasn't really a crime or you didn't do anything wrong or you shouldn't have gotten all that prison time. They probably come to you and tell you that thinking that they're making you feel better. I call that minimization of the crime. Personally, I don't like that. I actually get angry about it. I, I, I get angry. I've had I've had judges come to me who I've been having dinner with and come to me and says, I would have never sentenced that for you or I would have never even allowed your case to go through. I've had judges tell me that. Right. How do you feel about that? I agree with you. Uh, and I have had a lot of prosecutors, as well as ex-FBI agents who I teach classes with now, come to me and, and sort of, to summarize what you just said, said that case was a joke or it would never have been brought today or in 2003. This was clearly politically motivated and so on and so forth. But 
the law is the law. So I may disagree with it, but you got to follow yeah. the law. So even when it comes to today, you know, cannabis is, a, is an area that there's a lot of people who have been unfairly put in prison and whatnot. But there are still laws. But there are still laws. So you have to follow those. In this case, um, you know, my partner was clearly guilty. A lot of these other hedge fund guys were clearly guilty. So you got to prosecute the laws. Now, you can argue that this wasn't a good allocation of resources. There's limited people limited financial ability to prosecute these crimes. So we gave a free pass to the banks. We gave a free pass to a lot of other bad actors. And these cases were never really properly investigated because it's a lot easier to arrest a guy like me or like Rajas Ratnam than it is to go after JP Morgan or some of these other politically connected institutions, which again, paid hundreds of billions of fines, but never nobody went to prison. Whereas in my case, I made 30 grand was the amount I settled my case for and got 30 months in prison. So that's a very different standard that I was held to. Uh, and again, the law, by the law, I could not have been convicted. But again, it's, it's you know, a different system in a different time. So you have to follow that time as it is. So the year is um, it's 2015. Yep. And we're sitting in my office and you're you're preparing me to go to prison. Were you the guy who told me to go work at Whole Foods when I got out? You know who I'm talking about. Yes. There's, there's a mutual guy that we know. He told me who, who told me we should go work at Whole Foods when we get out because they hire felons. But you laugh, but like here we are in like the ultimate crypto bear market. It's 2015. Yep. And I'm about to go to prison for two years. And I'm like, crypto may not exist when I get out. Bitcoin may not exist. What am I going to do for money? How am I going to work? And that was a real fear I had. Um, did you have that fear when you when you came out when you were while you were inside? Yeah, I mean, look, I was a lawyer, a CFA, chartered financial analyst. I had all types of securities licenses. I had worked for one of the big law firms out there. Ran my own hedge fund. Uh, in a single moment, in two thousand nine, an FBI an FBI SWAT team basically raided my house with drug dogs and canines. Woke me up at five in the morning, you know, arrested me roughly in front of my three young kids who were crying and a crying wife. Um, so there was in, someone who was arrested recently and everyone made a big deal about how he was arrested. I think it was Roger Stone. You're probably yes, that's what I'm to. thinking so about. Again, an older gentleman who had you said, come on in, we're going to arrest you or we have a warrant for your arrest. He would have showed up. Sure. There's been cases where if you send an FBI SWAT team with loaded weapons, uh, there are accidents. I mean, if you, you know, when I opened the it door. It happened to me. It happened yeah, to you. Absolutely. Like there's people in Arizona, there was a case where somebody got killed because they either opened the door too quick or a gun discharged or whatnot. But in this case, it was designed solely to terrorize my family and myself because they came in, they burst in and it was, hey, you need to cooperate and talk to us right now or you're not going to see your kids for 10 years. Uh, and I didn't even know what I was being arrested for. Yeah. I'm like, can I at least find out what you're charging me with and why are these canines running around my house and, and, you know, why am I on the floor and why are my kids screaming? Uh, and it, it's very much, again, it was it was designed to terrorize, to get it's me to traumatic, cooperate. forever. And then we spoke about presumed innocence. That's not a presumed innocence type of situation. Nobody ever asked me a single question to say, hey, we think you knew the source of this tip or we think you were a knowing member of this conspiracy. Come in and answer some questions or we're going to arrest you. That's what, you know, proper notice, knowledge and sort of due process would entail in a case like this. I mean, it's not a, a nuclear suitcase in Grand Central where you sure. have to grab the guy and or 
and the threat before something happens. This is securities fraud. There's no victim who's losing money even in this case. Theoretically, the victim's the market, but there's nothing going on here. And just to give you one more indication, why crypto to me meant something and why you opened my eyes a little bit in 2014, 2015 when we started meeting. In my case, again, I decided to go to trial and turn down a plea of no jail, no fine. Why? Because I didn't think I did anything illegal. Okay. And I was stubborn, uh, didn't really understand the system entirely, but was very, very confident that I was you willing wanted to, to defend yourself. I was willing to face time to defend myself and, and to give you my side of the story of what happened and, and why I didn't do anything illegal. In retrospect, there may have been some things I did wrong in that I sort of tolerated somebody working for me who raised some red flags that I still kept working with because you know the underlying story is greed. I thought he could make me money. I thought he was a smart guy. Sure. I knew he had some personal flaws. I didn't think it extended to the you know point of him trying to bribe a lawyer or doing some of the other things he was accused of. But either way, when I turned down their plea, the government you know turned up the heat, which again, very extra constitutional. So they sent agents to follow me. They shut down and froze my accounts. So my bank accounts were closed. I wasn't able to get the money then out to defend myself, to hire you know, the legal counsel or make the moves I needed to do. They canceled my credit cards. They shut my wife's business accounts. And she was the only one at the time now working to put food on the table for our children. So think about that. Before a single trial or summary or anything else that took place. Sounds like the old Soviet Russia days. Yeah. Very similar. I was closed out of the system. I mean, try paying your mortgage with a money order from CVS. It's not the easiest thing in the world. So at that point, that sort of was eventually the light bulb that went off with Bitcoin. I was like, so I thought the money I worked for my whole life was my money. I thought because I had it in an account at TD Bank, it was my money. And then, you know, you try to call TD Bank and, and say, well, what happened? And, you know, go through all the legal channels. But no, that money's not yours if somebody else can shut it off at, at whatever whim they have. So that that was the basic light bulb for me where crypto and Bitcoin became really interesting because you understand it theoretically, but when it happens to you personally and it your family and everything else is involved, it really hits home. eToro is crypto trading made easy. It's one of the largest and smartest trading platforms in the world with extraordinarily low and transparent fees. Join myself and 11 million other traders and create an account at eToro.com. Links in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. I'd like to thank my sponsor of Untold Stories, Scott Offord. Scott is a Bitcoin mining consultant and provides managed miner hosting services in Texas. If you need to get at least 25 megawatts of miners online in the next three months, Scott wants to talk with you right now. Contact him on Telegram or Twitter at OFFORD. S-C-O-T-T. He's offering an all-in rate of 6.5 cents per kilowatt an hour. Wow, that's like super cheap. That's like electricity cost in the Arctic where things are automatically cooled because it's so cold. So he's offering 6.5 cents per kilowatt an hour without any CapEx required. Or if you commit to $170,000 per megawatt up front, he can get you a rate of 5 cents per kilowatt. Am I reading that right? 5 cents per kilowatt? That's unbelievable. Scott can get your first 25 megawatt hashing within 16 weeks from the date of signing. All the infrastructure, 
Power lines, substations, water lines, and buildings are fully owned by the hosting company. By the end of March 2020, they will already have 150 megawatts online in Texas. This is such a super cool ad to record because my listeners are learning about mining now. Like this is this is really interesting. I, I didn't even know half this stuff before I met Scott and he started sponsoring the show. So make sure you check out Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O. TT. And Scott, thank you again for being my first ever untold story sponsor. And so when I was in I was in prison, um Bitcoin was going through a bear market. And then um as I was getting ready to be released, it started getting into more of a bull market. Had you been paying attention the whole time and started seeing this like, oh, maybe this kid knows what he's talking about a little bit? Yeah, I mean I was look, as a traditional markets guy. When we first started about talking about Bitcoin, my general response is probably the response of most people still today. It's like the government's never going to allow this sure. to happen. They're going to shut this down. How can they allow people Why to control their own money? I think to some degree, it's been the frog in boiling water theorem. What's in that, that theory? I never heard that before. So, so if you drop a frog into boiling water, he'll he'll jump out. He'll, he'll understand that this will kill him or it's not good. If you put a frog into warm water, you know, it'll think it's a bath. And if you slowly turn that heat up to the point where it's boiling, it'll kill him because he'll never have that sort of emotional, physical reaction of, hey, I need to get out of here. So you're slowly tightening the noose. So it's the slow tightening of the noose. I think the the government in the beginning thought, oh, this is kind of a curious thing. And it's, you know, it's, it's really just not going to ever be something that's going to change the world or that's a threat to the existing infrastructure. And I think by the time it's permeated so far uh, and infused nearly every part now of the globe, you know, I don't want to say it's too late because this is something we could talk about later. I have a lot of fear that there's a ton of complacency in the Bitcoin community and in the crypto community that, hey, it's too late. The cat's out of the bag. They can't shut this thing down. Uh, but it does have a lot of corporate backing now. And there's a lot of other countries where it's become you know, it's become critical to the survival of the people. Sure. It's become critical to the survival of the people in Venezuela and other places. But I agree with you. I think that to get cocky and think that we're here, here we are in this amazing um, payment system or alternative financial system and we're untouchable is a very bad thing to think because I still think that in, in one fell swoop, any government, especially like a like a Western government, like the, the United States or the European Union, could come in and just shut it all down if they wanted to really, really, really badly. Um, and there's a number of ways they can do that. And yes, you know, in order to shut down Bitcoin, you'd have to shut off every internet, every computer on the Internet. Um, but what they could do is not shut down Bitcoin as we know it today but they can make it effectively impossible and or illegal to hold it or use it and transfer in and out of it with dollars where it would go back to being an underground and remain this, you know, these like one of these like political parties that are banned, you know? So right. yes, the political parties exist, but they're banned and they'll never be in government. They're marginal actors that don't have any real influence. Exactly. And that could potentially happen. And Satoshi saw that um, Satoshi, when a lot of the early crypto people, we, we had said, Hey, Satoshi, like we should get WikiLeaks to accept Bitcoin. He said, don't do it. He said, let's let's we're still too young. Let's not let the cat out of the bag and let's not do it. And of course, no one listened to him. And we got WikiLeaks. You know, he said, let's going to it's going to kick the hornet's nest. And we got WikiLeaks to accept Bitcoin. 
And that really changed the game of how Bitcoin was perceived. It was a very bad first impression or a very good first impression, depending on who you ask. Very observant. Uh, and I think you have a lot of people who are very cocky about it with, you know, the honey badger and the Bitcoin obituary and nothing could touch it. Uh, and I agree with you. And it's not just a Western government. It's really the U.S. I, I, let's call, you know, a spade a spade. Sure. The dollar is the reserve currency. Uh, first of all, Europeans and some of the other countries, China's tried to ban it. It's not as, you know, motivated by that. But the U.S. with the financial and intelligence structure, if they wanted to, uh, go after it and really try to ban it, it would be an issue. Uh, and I don't think people, I don't think Bitcoin has been tested by a sovereign actor of that caliber. I mean, maybe the North Koreans have tried to hack in some other smaller rogue governments. But if you think about it, the U.S. is a whole different animal. So, and I'll give you a personal story on this. When I got out of prison, what people don't understand is it's, then you go on probation typically. So I had a three-year probation and sometimes you have a good probation officer. Sometimes you have somebody who's maybe not so good. Mine was very active in what I was doing, which was not a good thing because, again, you have a person who doesn't really care about you making critical day-to-day -day decisions for you based on her or his worldview. And it's a very you know regulated, government-friendly view. So this is 2015-ish, I believe. Bitcoin was around 250 and I bought a nice amount in the 250 range. Maybe it was lower than that, maybe 220, 230, because uh, it had hugged that 250 sure. for a while, looked like it was basing on a chart. And I said, look, if this thing can get above 250, 270, it's a good stay buy. above there, it's going to be a breakout. So bought a chunk. Uh, on probation, you have to reveal basically everything you do to them. So you have to file monthly financial statements. You have to, in some cases, if you spend more than $500, you have to tell them where you're spending money. So remember, I'm a 42-year-old adult with three kids and, and everything else. And if I want to spend $500, I need permission from you know someone who's never really had a job in the private sector, who doesn't know me or my you know situation, who in fact told me the first thing she said to me the first day we met was, I think it's a disgrace that your kids came to visit you in prison. And I think you should get back together with your wife. Wow. And you know my reaction to that is like when you get... It's the same as in prison. When somebody of authority that has absolute say over your future and your well-being tells you something, if you disagree, you sort of nod your head and, and pol politely say, okay, that's I agree with that or I respect that. You don't argue with those people because sure. there's no uh, ability to you know try to persuade them or, or to have an outlet for it. So those were the two things she told me. And I said, look, I, I think you know the fact that my kids were able to see me, it's not like they had to hop a gate and dodge yeah. past a rifle tower to the, see the, me the, it was a visiting section. the visiting rooms are not yeah. like bad they have like little yeah. kids toys and tvs vending and, machines and, vending machines. And, yeah. and all that it's like a little kindergarten i've seen right. preschools that are in bad worse shape than those visiting rooms and my wife was the one who served me while i was away so it wasn't um you know my decision but i said thank you very much for the advice mind you this is advice coming from an unmarried childless uh person uh but either way I had to reveal to her that I had bought Bitcoin, just like I had to reveal to her eventually later that I had made an investment in a CBD company. And her response was, without knowing what Bitcoin was, really, other than maybe an article she saw in the news somewhere, was, if I hear you're even remotely doing anything in that sector, buying it, touching it, writing about it, anything else, I will send you back to prison tomorrow. Wow. 
And it was not a, well, let me explain to you why it's allowed and here's the treasury ruling. It was end it. You so have, what happened? I, I sold. I mean, I had no choice. I wasn't going to risk going back to prison. So that goes to your point where if the government actually did a frontal ban or assault, all these people in San Francisco or Austin or everywhere else who are these Bitcoin libertarians, 98% of them would not face a 10-year prison sentence or real no. jail time 99% of them would be shaking in their boots the yes. first night in a holding cell. And would liquidate. Certainly Li all yeah. of the big tech people would be, you know, out. Sure. Um, so, and I don't think the government is that dumb at this point. No, they I know think, that. So I don't think they would, but I don't think they would do a frontal assault. What worries me now is much more of a, again, frog in boiling water type of, of assault in that, you know, whether it's, Libra or FATF, the FinCEN regulations. FinCEN uh, is now doing the travel rule where exchanges have to give your KYC AML information to another exchange. If Tell me about how that crypto. would work. So that's a very recent development that came out. Now exchanges have to share information with each other or or what's what if they don't? Well, if they don't, they're in violation of, of certain FinCEN rules. And most of these exchanges aren't going to take that risk to be shut down. So exchanges in Europe or China, how do, what do they have to if do? If you're a member of FATF, let's say you're sending your, let's say you have a Coinbase account, you're already full KYC AML. If you want to then send to Binance or to Gemini or one of these other uh, institutions, when Coinbase sends your coins there, they have to also send your information. So they know exactly who you are and whatnot. Now that may be, if it's just that, that's not something that's that's terrible, but it's rarely, hey, that's all that's going to happen. Yeah, it's always a precursor. So then if it becomes, a hey, any type of wallet to wallet transfer, if you're a vendor of a wallet and you have to do KYC, AML and travel rule, then that's, you know, another step that would sort of. But don't you think that'll push people to be using more wallets that where they control their own keys and using decentralized exchanges? Yes. But what happens when it becomes a peer to peer rule and you have to, you know, more or less become a not a money transmitter, but you have to do full KYC or, or something else. So they can come out and say, if you're sending more than a thousand dollars to someone or receiving it, you have to have the KYC of that person. I mean, person. it would be outrageous and it would be incredibly it could be possible. unconstitutional, not unconstitutional. It would be very uh, aggressive and it would tell you, hey, we want to control every single dollar, Bitcoin, any type of currency that moves anywhere. We need to see who's doing it and where. So that, so that again, point, but that becomes... Again, yeah, a system where you can confiscate a system that becomes more centralized. So it would it make it so difficult. That's that's my point. It would yes. make it so difficult and so complicated and so expensive to use transaction to hold. And the whole point of it would go away at that point. Right. That people won't use it anymore. Right. And, and again, Libra has some of those tendencies, too. I was encouraged that at least and this is sort of counterintuitive that Congress and some of these other regulatory agencies sort of attacked it right away because sure. if you think about it libra is the perfect vehicle for these people if it becomes which it would eventually become because it's anyway centralized a bitcoin competitor and it's not going to yeah it's a competitor but it's also a permissioned centralized it's basically a conduit to u.s financial intelligence as well as other uh governments out there the, so the 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 early bitcoin people like myself were, were born out of this freedom movement right and this is before i even got arrested this was a like take control of your own money because it'll, you know, free. You. And it wasn't like criminally or privacy related in the U.S. We were like, yeah, the U.S. is cool. Sure. But 
if we have this more open financial system, we can transact and globalization. This was, don't forget, this was the Obama era. Mm -hmm. So when Bitcoin was born, this Bitcoin was born around the same time, Obama, literally a few months after Obama was inaugurated. So this was the globalized world. Let's work together with everyone over the next four years, next eight years of Obama's presidency. That was the, that was the, um, the mantra, you know, open world and diversity and, we're all love and, and you know, whatever you want to say about the Obama presidency, fine, whether you're a big fan of him or not. But there was that message. So the Bitcoin movement came out of that, that, that hatred of the big centralized banking world. It wasn't the it wasn't see there. It wasn't the hatred of the government. Right. The early and people get that mistaken. The early Bitcoin messages in the early Bitcoin world wasn't we hate the government. It was the we hate the centralized big banks and corporations that are that are controlling and freezing um, our money and not allowing us to participate. That was so you had the first, you know, eight years of the Obama presidency that was very open. And that was the early message. And you could be a loving, you know, Bitcoiner and still be, for lack of a better term, a statist, someone who believed in the government is a good thing. You know, mm -hmm. um, you could be both. It seems like Nowadays, that camp is being divided, and it seems like unless you're like a super government lover and you want to open up like you know, like Gemini, you want to right. open up everything to everyone and you want to be like fully like, please, like supervise me, you know, like supervise me, government. If you're not in that camp, you're in the extreme right wing libertarian anarchist, anarchist, bad, bad person camp. There's no middle ground anymore. And that's not just in Bitcoin. That's in global politics everywhere. It's a great sort of analogy for what's taking place across the spectrum. So you've got, you know, Twitter's the perfect example. If you're not sort of agreeing with my point of view, you know, you're you're a criminal, you're a lunatic, you're something out there. I mean, we have an entire nation now. And again, it's not an entire nation. It's just magnified by the call it the 20 percent of people that are on Twitter or what. It's not even that much. Right. But, but again, like, these are a lot of the people controlling the media, controlling sort of public perception and culture. So it's an outsized impact with an outsized megaphone, and it's become a nation of confirmation bias. People on Twitter or anywhere else, they no longer look to other people's viewpoints to try to understand where the weaknesses are in theirs. As a former money manager, sure. that's all I did. I had my thesis. I still have my thesis with whether it's Bitcoin or anything else. But I'm always looking for different areas to, to bust that thesis, to break it down, to make it invalid. Everyone now, it feels like on Twitter, just finds their own thread of people that agree with them. 100%. It's an echo chamber and people cheer it. Well, so, what happens is what happens is if, if you're like a random person and you have something like powerful using loaded words, you know, a, a definition of a loaded word is a word basically to... Um, to sway opinion by someone reading that word. So actually a side point, a really good way to tell if the newspaper or the, 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 the internet article or the magazine you're reading is biased one way or another is how many loaded words do they use? And that's a very good way to, to tell. Like, for example, I read The Economist. The Economist is known for using the least amount of loaded words. Yes, it makes it very boring and dry. Sure. But at least, you know, it's a pretty centrist magazine newspaper. Um, but I think my point was, is that you could be a random person, you know, and wherever you are in Iowa and say something. And if like the vice president of a political party happens to come across, likes your tweet, and then all of a sudden you get like 10,000 likes and retweets, 
The New York Times will use that as a use you as a quote in their article. So now it's not the media formulating their own opinions. They're taking the opinions of someone they saw on Twitter and then pushing that opinion on everyone else. Yeah. And then you have a president who literally the whole point of like a press secretary was filter. This is this is this is a crazy thing. Up until the, the the Trump presidency, and there have been good and bad of the Trump presidency. I'm I'm very happy of the the tax breaks he has given me and other people and whatever you say for better or for worse. And I and I love it because I can't vote. Actually, I just got my voting rights back, and I'm mad about that because I don't. <laughs> I, I liked being able to like withdraw myself from political conversations, but under the assumption that I can't vote, I don't have an opinion either way. But it. it you're born with and you're known and you're raised and you're read in textbooks, going back to the textbooks, that the press secretary is the mouthpiece for the government. The press secretary goes every single day, every single day during every presidency, every single day at like four o'clock would get up and talk to the press. Even if there was nothing to talk about, would get up there and talk to the press. And that would be the, the conversation that would, would, yeah, would have. Trump hasn't done one in like months. He's the first president. There has been no. And that to me tells me that our conversation, our political conversations are happening over Twitter, over Instagram, over Facebook. And that could be a good thing. That could also be a very bad thing. Yeah, no, it's again, technology is changing all these things. And I don't think we understand entirely what the effect will be. Uh, you have these, you know, and this goes towards Bitcoin. If Bitcoin's free money and you're entitled to own your money uh, and, and own some of your privacy, you have these what would have become really monopolistic, almost quasi-governmental entities Absolutely. like Twitter and Facebook and Google who control platforms, who control access, and they've shown to be bad actors as well. So, um, you know, are you going to trust Facebook with Libra if you can't even trust them to to have your account where you can say things that they may not agree with. I mean, but we do. We trust these these when when Libra came out with that with that chart of mm -hmm. all the companies that are going to be the validators. These are Visa, MasterCard, blah, blah, blah. We trust those companies as a as another. You can almost look at them as like another government. We trust those companies as as a decision making body, because that's what they are. That foundation is a decision-making body. You know, each company gets one vote. So it's literally another, like, kind of like government. We, tr as we, as Americans and as global citizens, we trust that those companies more than we trust our government. Is that a good or bad thing? I don't know if that's still the case. I mean, I, again, and we talked earlier about hating the government. No way do I hate the government. I have my skepticism and suspicions. But that's and okay. You're allowed to It be... is okay. And you're right. The banking system has been much more egregious than our government. But the banking system is a private actor, just like Facebook and Visa and unelected. PayPal. And those are private actors, unelected, who have the ability to flip a switch and shut you out of a system that now more and more people's livelihood depends on it. I mean, look at the YouTube and other areas, the demonetization that's taking place. Um, I mean, speech is a lot less dangerous than money. I would tell opinion. people, I would tell people to use the dollar over using Libra coin. Yeah. I mean, it, I would say you're safer using the dollar. At least there's due process and there's a system for being able to unfreeze your accounts. Whereas if PayPal or Facebook Libra froze it, there's no due process. And I don't want to jump and, and have complete, uh, you know, 
speculation of what it will look like. I mean, they say it eventually will get decentralized and less I don't believe it. I don't believe it for a second either. But, you know, you, you have to in some way see how it plays out. But if they can flip a switch, with they, which they do to speech they don't like, uh, how can you trust an entity like that to have control over money? Like I said, speech is a lot less dangerous than money, in my opinion. And they've had the ability and haven't used their sort of, you know, sure. governance in a proper way. Uh, they've shut down speech. So if, if they're shut down speech, they're going to shut down money as well, as well as, you know, compromise your privacy and, and feed it into a giant database. But we'll see, you know, they, they're saying some of the right things. And again, if it broadens the adoption of crypto, I mean, one of the reasons I started, you know, a crypto newsletter and got into that space was to broaden the adoption of crypto to show people who weren't, you know, already in the space why this is a superior form of money, why it's better for privacy, why it's better for freedom and empowerment and everything else. The conversation so. is is the most important thing because information and money are the two freedoms in our, in our day and age that we need to focus on the most. Those are the two. Information and money is everything. Sorry, our basic human rights are... are basically defined by the freedom of information, the freedom of money. That's why when there's a coup d'etat in a, in a foreign African country, the first thing they do is shut off the internet and close the banks. First thing they do, even in Cyprus and Greece, Argentina, Venezuela, first thing they do to control people. They don't, they don't come out and say, yeah, you know, like there's a coup d'etat. You guys can't practice your religions anymore. I don't give a shit. Go practice whatever religion you want. It's you can't transact. And you can't talk. Yeah. I mean, if you control the money, you control the population. And that's been lesson one in Venezuela, Cuba, you name it, any other type of socialist enterprise. And information is, again, it's getting free, which is amazing. Um, technology is amazing that it's enabled and will enable things like IPFS or other mesh networks so that Iran or Turkey or any of these other places you've talked about, Venezuela, can't shut down that internet. So as interesting as crypto is from the monetary viewpoint, it's super interesting as well, um, and technology, from that informational viewpoint. Because if you can't shut it down, um, I don't think anybody thinks the Middle East or certain other places, Venezuela, you name it, would be like they were, would be like they are today if there was the free flow of information. Does anybody think North Korea would be a, a complete hermit state if sure. everybody understood what's going on out there. Uh, and again, you know, that's hopefully a trend that will be more and more difficult to stop. But it also goes against the interests of government. Tell me about your first day in prison. First day in prison was, uh, it was pretty brutal. It, it, it literally, you know, when it comes to lawyers and everybody else, most people are motivated to either get you off at trial or negotiate the, the best deal possible for you. But after that, nobody really understands what comes next. No. And that includes judges, prosecutors, lawyers. I mean, if you wanted to have a better criminal justice system, and I've been active in reform for many years now, one of the things you can do is, is make judges and prosecutors and, and lawyers, you know, go through it for a day or understand what it's like and, and how it sort of presents itself. So 
you know, they, they had no idea. I had no idea. That's why I talked to people as well. You know, you show up, they kind of barely know that you're supposed to be there. Yeah, they. I don't know. I didn't get the dog. I sit down on the side. Right. You know, they, they didn't have clothes for me. So they dressed me in like a 3XL t-shirt. Yes. It was like down to my, you know, ankles. Didn't have shoes. So they gave me socks. And he's like, you know, the guy who does jackets isn't here right now. Go get some lunch. And I'm like, well, where's lunch? And they're like, go that way. You'll find it. You know, so go to the sort of cafeteria. Mm-hmm. And, and it literally was like you would expect in the movies, like the DJ record stops and scratches yes. as I walk and in everyone's looking at you. a 4XL t-shirt, no, you know, no shoes, everything too big for me, looking like a complete, you know, deer in headlights and walked in and, and the whole place turns and looks at you and you're like, wow, this is different from what I expected. Um, and everybody, you know, sort of said, oh, you'll go to a camp. Or you remember what lunch was for that day? Security. I, I think it was the gray pork in a cup. Oh, um, I remember the gray so pork in a cup. It's we a little got, shaved yes. pork in a cup. Literally, it's a shot glass of discarded <laughs> yeah. gristled pork. And it's all like bony and yes. cartilagey and they give you like um, a piece of bread and butter. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, that was most the one of the I hated food the most. Is, is, would be if it was a private institution would be condemned. It's either expired or it's not edible or whatnot. Oh, but I forgot about the pork in a cup. You know, you walk in and it's it's also a very different, um, the inmate population was different than I expected. I don't know why. Everyone but, thinks it's all white collar people yeah, sitting around playing tennis all day. Those don't exist anymore. So no. Lewisburg, in case in point, it was about 500 people. There were about 200 black, 200 Spanish, 100 white. And maybe out of that entire population, 25 white collar people yeah i mean it was just, it was like a dozen yeah. or two it's just that just shows how endemic and ridiculous the war on drugs is it's all drugs it's probably 80 to 85 percent and that was the first thing that the intake guy said to me he said money or drugs and i was like i didn't know what he was talking about I'm yeah like, is he trying to give me or sell me or am i gonna get in trouble <laughs> with you know so i just looked at him and he's like are you here for money or drugs and i was like oh i, I guess money you know but that's the it's a combination of both. Yeah. Could it be a combination of both? It could be. And then he gave me the, uh, you know, sort of the warning of uh, you're going to behave yourself here. And, uh, you know, what do you say to that? Like, no. Like, is there anybody <laughs> dumb enough to say no? Yeah, I'm not. some people yeah. would say no. Right? I'm like, of course. He's like, good, because. So you're in the you're in the R&D room. Yeah. And that's the room that you only see when you enter, when you leave, receiving a discharge. I remember that room. But they pointed to, so Lewisburg is, is a minimum security, but it's attached to a pen, a maximum security. That's one of the most violent and, you know, really sad places on earth. screams at night. Yes. (laughs) When you walk the track, you could actually hear inmates screaming in pain and and other types of violence going on. Uh, And he said to me, look, if you don't behave, we're going to send you up there. You know what's up there. And I was like, I have no. He's like, that's a gladiator school. We pull people out of there with holes in them every day. And that's what happened. You would see ambulances there all week long. I think there was a couple people who who were murdered while I was there. So it's it's a really, you know, just depraved, awful place that I don't think the American people or anybody else would allow the criminal justice system to exist in its current form if they understood what it was like. And that's why they don't allow cameras in federal prisons and whatnot. Um, you know, everybody believes in punishment and punishment is necessary. But if there's no rehabilitative aspect to it, and there was very little rehabilitative aspect that I saw anywhere. There was no rehabilitation. No. What was there? Well, Working I mean, in the garage and learning how to, you know, fix a tire? Theoretically, inmates could teach classes. I taught GED, but I wanted to teach a class for job training and other types of interview skills and real estate and that type of thing. And the administration said, no, they're like, you know, we like them dumb. We like them coming right back to us. So 
Uh, there really is, you know, nothing to get somebody uh, the right mindset to get them back out on the street once they have to go out to re-enter society in a productive way. And that's why the recidivism rates are, you know, 60, 70%, which is tragic. It, it's hundreds of billions of dollars, not just a house, but think of the lost wages, the future crime, the families broken up. It, it's really a bad system. And I think healthcare, criminal justice, there are all these other big sure. sort of leviathans that technology really hasn't touched. And I'm optimistic that either data or technology or reform as we sort of become more evolved, hopefully as a species realizes, you know, there's a difference between murder and not paying your taxes or, or whatnot. And that it doesn't, somebody who's gone through the latter doesn't deserve the same type of scarlet letter as somebody who did the former. And once they get out, we want that person back on their feet. We don't want them to be a ward of the state. You're, when you're in there, in the movies, they tell you, like, never ask what someone did to mm -hmm. be in there. It's the complete opposite. The first thing you do is talk about, like, what did you do and what did the other person do right. when you become friends with someone? So you end up befriending, or I wouldn't call these people friends, some of them maybe, but you talk to these people and you... Um, you ask them what they did or they ask you what you did and you're just jaw drops when you find out it's like guys in, in jail for eight years for a little having a pound of weed in his car. Yeah. I mean, I'll never forget watching the 2012 election and what was more uh, just surprising and, and heartbreaking than anything else, you know, wasn't the presidential election with with Romney and Obama. It was Colorado legalizing weed. And literally to the left were of you me. In, you were in prison watching that? Yes. Okay, to the left really? of me was a guy serving five years for conspiracy. And his conspiracy charge was literally he had friends come in from out of state and say, hey, you know, can you hook us up? We want to get some, some weed. And he said, uh, you know, I don't have any, but I'll hook you up with the guy I get it from. And of course, the guy who was asking was wired up because he had been busted somewhere else. And that became a federal, you know, interstate Still conspiracy lines, crime. Yeah. Just introducing somebody for that. Wow. And then the guy to the right of me was serving 10 years for growing plants in his basement. And because it took place in Maine, he had a rifle in his house like everybody else in Maine. And so it was a five-year additional for a firearm. So oh, yeah. 10 years for growing plants in your basement. And these two guys are sitting next to me watching Colorado legalize everything they just did and say it's okay. And this guy's got another six years in prison. And this guy's got another three years in prison. I mean, that's that's not a moral system. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So that was that was sad. I put you on that bench. You sat on that bench, the brown bench the first day. I never forget that brown bench. You sit down on the bench and a guy walks up to me and says, if, if you put... Someone puts candy on your pillow. Don't eat it. <laughs> and of course, I ate it because I thought he was joking. Um, I slept with my eyes open that first night. Yeah, there's there's a lot of, you know, you learn in a very fast manner uh, what the sort of rules are of prison. Respect. Um, yeah, and that's it. It's it's respect and humility. Don't get into people's business too much. Um, but it's it's a fascinating microcosm, too, for the broader economic world. Like, you know, we talked about... They use mackerel as currency yep. and the government or the administration through their actions in certain ways, like the people who would run these black market soda and ice cream and, you know, candy shops. Uh, occasionally they'd raid them and, and they'd confiscate all of their just currency it or on the throw floor, it on yeah. the floor. And, and, you know, remember the story where there was a guy who had a couple hundred of them. Yeah. And so they basically deeper debased the currency debased overnight the by, currency. by putting it out there. Um, you know, that's it, a crazy story that I tell, but it's, it's so true. And like, these guys would literally charge like one mackerel for a cold soda at night while you watch TV. It wasn't like 
black market that you think that's the people operating these little these little stores and their and their units and their bunks but it's the arbitrariness of government or prison or that administration where they allowed that stuff to happen until they didn't so I, I don't know if you remember but in the lunchroom it said do not take milk out of the lunchroom I remember do not take sign, food out of the lunchroom you can't take food and milk out, and people did so it. everybody would walk right out with an apple if you're eating an apple you were allowed to go outside you could take a you know a milk carton outside if you were drinking milk and 99 out of 100 times, never an issue. 999 out of 1,000 times, never an issue. But if you had a guard who got in a fight with his girlfriend or had a bad day or whatever, you open yourself up to, you know, obviously doing something, you know, technically wrong and, and having to pay a pretty steep price for it. The hardest part of prison is that you could be breaking a rule at any given time and not know it. Right. Anything you're doing wrong, you just don't know if you're doing something wrong or not because you're just trying to live your life. But there were so many, arbit like there were rules that you couldn't read in RDAP, you couldn't read fiction before 4 p.m. Right. You couldn't sleep before 4 p.m. Right. So from the hours of 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., you couldn't take a nap. You couldn't read books that were not, that were fiction. You couldn't, it was all these arbitrary things. So we had a guy sent to the hole for challenging that in a, in a interesting way. Really? That he was reading the Bible. Oh, and everybody, at least the guards are fairly religious there, at least on the surface. They pretend to be religious. They may not always be moral. And, and I'm generalizing. There were sure, some, there very were some good really good ones yes. who I thought were decent people. And then there were others who were, again, very uh, unhappy and punitive. Power so, hungry. Yes. I mean, there was a guy, you know who I'm talking about. He was he was basically a drunk. Yes. Uh, who in the visiting room, you know, you were allowed to sort of bring some toys for kids or books and my son once, who was about a year and a half, had a McDonald's Happy Meal car and was just playing with it on the table. And he came by and literally grabbed it out of his hand uh, and just snatched it and, you know, accosted me. Son's hysterically crying. You know, the other 25 visits, nobody ever had a problem with anything. But he had a bad day. And that's, you know, he took sure. it out on a one and a half year old kid. I mean, What happened with the Bible guy? So he said, you know. This is fiction and I'm reading it. And, you know, it, it wasn't even a long debate. I think it was like around two and a half minutes before it was put it away or else. And he said, well, you know, I'm allowed to read fiction and this and that. And he said, boom, you're gone. Right in the hole. Never came back. Never so, came back. No. I mean, you have people who... Uh, and that's the appeal it felt like It felt like the old like communist Russia. You'd have friends and it Snatched. happened to me too. Middle of the night. Middle of the night, they come in, they're yes. banging the light, you know, the <laughs> flashlights on the on the poles. And and then all of a sudden you hear like ruffling and then your friend gets pulled up from his bed and you never see him Gone. again. Gone. You know, it, and that's... It's like the Third Reich. That's the scary part. I mean, we laugh about it now a little bit because we're past it. Sure. But, you know, these are real people whose lives were upended And we have already. friends that are still and, in there. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a, you know, it's not a great system to put it mildly. What's the future for crypto? What does that look like five I, years from now? I, I think it's very, I think it's more uncertain than most people think. Really? I think you have the, the two camps again, who are on one side, it's this stuff will never be worth anything. You'll never replace the dollar. Everything else is fine. And then on the sort of, you know, crypto side, it's it's inevitable. You can't stop Bitcoin. You can't stop the adoption. It's a superior form of money. It's it, And it is in every single way. Mathematically based. It's, you know, disinflationary. You can't print it out of existence. Uh, it is superior in every single way. But it is fundamentally conflicts with the desire of banks and governments sure. to control. 
uh, and to basically say, you know, we have uh, approval of transactions is is what people want. Um, so I hope, I mean, my ideal would be that this reckoning, this conflict head to head doesn't happen soon because it's, it, it is, again, to use the analogy so for the third time, the frog in boiling water. At a certain point, there's going to be enough people that understand it, that own it, that Bitcoin will become sort of a self-propelling uh, economy. It will you'll have lobbyists like they do with traditional finance and everywhere else, and you'll have groups that will plead and, and lobby and and you know try to maintain uh, the ability to use it. Now, again, so we the hardcore people the... will say it doesn't matter. You can't sure. stop it, and that may be the case. But again. And I'm biased, obviously. I have this argument with a lot of people in the community uh, who say nobody can do anything to stop it. The government can never do it. But as somebody who has felt the full brunt and force of the government, again, I will go back to if, if they want to say 10 years sure. for anything, just like they've done in the past with gold and other instruments, if it becomes something where... You know, don't think that in a year or two that Iran or somebody, if there's a terrorist incident... Uh, and it's been funded by Bitcoin, whether it was funded or not by Bitcoin, the sort of public story yes. is going to be Bitcoin or crypto enabled this. And then it'll be the Brad Sherman story of how can we allow it for criminals or terrorists or whatnot? It has to be totally regulated, KYC, AML. And that's when you have like, whether it's Libra or these other things that are sort of regulated. And they'll say that's a perfectly good substitution Plus, it's KYC. We know who's using it. You can't operate in the dark. So there is a fundamental conflict. That conflict eventually has to come out in the open. I hope it's in a couple of years by the time that Bitcoin is more entrenched in, in the regular economy, the technology and the user interface is better. So it's easier for people to use and that you have people in office who uh, understand it and, and understand the power it has for people. So, you know. I would love to challenge Brad Sherman for that seat. You know, if I wasn't, if I didn't have my three kids in New York, sure. I'd move to LA where I grew up in the San Fernando Valley and challenge him for that seat because he is that dinosaur. You should who totally doesn't do understand what crypto is. He, he Why know, don't you do it though? It's about time we we put a felon in Congress. If you could convince my ex-wife to move to LA with the kids, I would. My kids are still at an age where I need to be with them sure. uh, and close to them. Uh, and so they're, they're a couple years away from me being able to do something like that, but I would in a heartbeat and, and explain to people, you know, this guy sort of came out and explained how we weaponize the US dollar and use it against other countries and people. And and I think people are, are getting tired of that. I mean, it's a luxury we have that we can print to our heart's content because we are the reserve. Sure. But eventually that runs out. And there are a lot of people in this country who are angry and they don't know really what they're angry about, but they know they've gotten a raw deal over the last 20 to 25 years. And part of it is what the central banks have done with just destroying interest rates and taking them negative. Aren't they curious by how they used to be able to buy, like even as like seven, eight years ago, seven, eight years ago, you can go in and buy two slices of pizza and a soda and fries for $2. And now you can't even get one slice for $2. I paid $9 for a slice in Grand Central the other day. Wow. Now I'm clearly, you know, the mark in that situation, <clears throat> but, and it was a high end slice, but it's still a $9 slice. So who are they blaming? The government's telling us to blame China and Russia. they're blaming anybody, but they're mad. And they know that, hey, I've worked my life. I used to be able to get a decent return on the money I've saved. My wages used to rise with inflation somewhat. 
inflation has taken off and we've done a great job at sort of hiding pretending it. that it hasn't. Yeah. But like you said, it, it's, you know, the dollar's the probably down price, 40% in the last 20 years. Yeah, the consumer price index is, right. is, is, the, is inflation and we don't even look, yeah, inflation's at 2%, but Dude, it's like like, like a, that cup of coffee is just doubling in price every year. Yeah, for stuff you don't need, maybe it hasn't. So computers have come down, cell phones have come down, but food, energy, clothing, the stuff you need on a day-to-day -day basis has gone up and, and wages haven't kept pace. You can't put your money anywhere to get a decent rate of return. So these people, to some degree, don't understand what's going on. I think they they feel like they followed the rules, they've worked their whole life, and now they're having a diminishing ability to enjoy that life. And they're getting angrier and angrier as they see that, hey, I can no longer afford to buy my grandchildren gifts or sure. my children gifts or put them in college or do the things that were built, you know, sold to us as, as an American dream that if you do play by the rules, you'll be able to have. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's problematic. I will end off on this. I was listening to talk radio the, the other day. And I listened to talk radio my whole life. I used to fall asleep to talk radio, whether it's sports or Fox News or NPR or whatever it's political spectrum I was feeling that day. Um, and I was listening to um, a news broadcast on the BBC just last week. And for the past, I don't know, eight years, whenever Bitcoin would come into the, into in, in a story, Bitcoin would be the story and they would have to explain in like a two sentences yeah, Bitcoin, which is a peer-to-peer -peer digital currency that it's on the internet or, you know, whatever they would say about it, they'd have to explain it. The other day I heard a news story on the BBC and they went through it and mentioned Bitcoin so quickly. I was like, wait, what? Basically, it was a story that had Bitcoin in the story, but they didn't feel the need to emphasize the Bitcoin portion or even explain what Bitcoin is. And that to me was a very interesting sign that we're, we're definitely growing in that adoption phase and that was really interesting it presumed the knowledge which is great i love that yeah the mind shares you know it's going up and if you think about it it's 10 years old uh and really almost all of the growth from mindshare and everything has taken place in the last few years yeah so it's really changed in like three four years yeah but um mike thanks for thanks so much for coming on the show um confessions of a wall street insider on amazon barnes and noble wherever books are sold people can read it it's a fantastic book and if you contact Mike on Twitter, he may sign it for you. What's your Twitter? How can people follow you? Mike Kimmelman. Perfect. With one M, right? One M. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Charlie. Great to be here. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.